All right. Well, great time of fellowship. And now we're going to come on back and uh, get ready uh, to open your Bibles. And we're going to open our Bibles to chapter 11, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand and John Kennedy will get you one if you want a Bible or need a Bible. If you're on your phone, I suspect it's just you reading the Bible, not Facebook, right? (laughs) Or Twitter or Instagram. Uh, But if you uh, need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we will get you that. And listen, you know why you're going to wear a flannel? Well, it's cold, hopefully, to the Christmas party. Because you're going to square dance. And you're like, what? I'm going to square dance? Yes, you're going to square dance. We have two expert square dancers in the fellowship. They're the Serpas. But we did it two years ago, and uh, we found that we had a lot of uh, experts, and it was a lot of fun. And if you say, oh, we have three experts. I forgot about my friend there. We have three experts But if you say you can't square dance, I'm going to call you a liar, because if I can square dance, anybody can square dance. So uh, we're going to do that. So we're going to start with caroling and uh, some dinner, and then we'll uh, do some square dancing. I think we even have the collar all set up and ready to come. And uh, so, I mean, it's the real deal. So uh, what is that? December 4th? December 4th. Okay. Six o'clock. That's where we are. Uh, do me a favor, and you have probably, turn to chapter 11. And we are continuing through the book of Corinthians. It's a really sort of worldly city, not unlike many cities in the United States or around the world today. It was a seafaring city, a isthmus, I can never say that word, but you know what I mean, a little land, what is it called? Land area that you go across, four miles across. It was in southern, or is in southern Greece, but remember who dominated the world at the time? Rome. And so even though we're in Greece, it was oversaw or overseen by, by Rome. And this place was a rough place and a sort of a place where a lot of idols were worshipped, God bless you. And uh, in fact, it was a place where they worshipped the love goddess, which included prostitution in the name of worship. And so that was going on throughout the streets at nighttime. And so uh, you can imagine all the things that come with that. Well, in the middle of this, the Lord, of course plants a church, right? He plants the church at Corinth, and he does it through the Apostle Paul. And you can read about that in the book of Acts, where Paul moves to the city, finds some friends, and has his own job. He made tents. And he stayed there for 18 months and made tents during the day, and then when he got off work, or in the evening, I don't know, but you you get what I'm saying, half and half, he poured into the people of Corinth, and a church rose up, and then Paul, after a time, moved away. 
And I want you to just see in the first verse of chapter 7 of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, what it says. It says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Remember, Paul's writing the letter. And so he's received at least one letter, maybe more than one letter, but at least one letter from the church in Corinth. And he's asking, or they're asking his advice scripturally, biblically, on these certain issues. Now before that, we saw that there were some things creeping in at Corinth. They were having divisions because they liked certain pastors versus other pastors. And so when one pastor would speak, a faction or uh, a group would show up, but when another pastor spoke, nah, you get what I'm saying. They had their certain ones, and Paul talked to them about that. And there were other things that were happening about how they loved the wisdom of the world. Of course they would in Greece. That's what they did. They debated things, and they loved to show how smart and cunning and uh, philosophical they were. And God tells us through the, the, uh, the book of Corinthians to avoid worldly wisdom, but be strong in godly wisdom. And if you don't know where to look for wisdom uh, chapters, look in the third chapter of the book of James. And he also says and talks to us about immorality that had gone into the church. In fact, one man had uh, started having relations, including an ongoing relation, with his stepmom. His stepmom. And of course, that wasn't what was called for by the church, but here's what was more shocking, or maybe, I don't know if I'd say more shocking, but here is something that was shocking to the Lord, that the church would just put up with it without acting like anything had happened. In other words, the church didn't do anything about it. And he walks us through church discipline. Remember that? He also, uh, I see some of them here in the, uh, the courtroom today. I'm joking. The, the sanctuary. And he talked about how we're not to sue the brethren. We're not to bring lawsuits out into the world amongst ourselves. In other words, he, he says to us, Folks, work it out. It's better to take the loss than to defile my name before the, wor- the, the world, the Lord says. Now, I mentioned this, lawsuits among the brethren. You realize some people aren't brethren, right? <laughs> and so lawsuits happen, and thank the Lord for that, because there's three of us here that I see. It's a joke. It's a joke. Come on, you got to follow. There's some lawyers here is what I'm trying to say. Okay. So then he gets to chapter 7, and he says, I'm going to now address the things that you wrote to me about. The things that you wrote to me about. And one of the things that was really heavy on the mind was Christian liberty. What about the people who feel free to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, we don't really run into that problem very much, but for chapters 8, 9, and 10, he goes into it, and he talks about how people are free to to eat the meat, and how some people abstain from eating the meat, and either side is good and fine if the Lord has convicted you there, but the problem becomes, and you see it in the Christian church all the time, is when you start pointing fingers at the other camp and saying like things like, are you even saved because you do certain things that are uh, debatable issues, debatable issues. Should I put my kid in a public school or a Christian school? Oh my gosh, they're in the public school? 
oh, you should have them in the Christian school. Well, I agree. I like Christian schools too. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me back up. I agree that Christian schools are great, but I got to tell you, folks, I told the class here today, you're sitting here today because of the public schools. You're like, what? Well, two of our kids went to the public school when we first started a home fellowship. And the Lord used our children to bring people to the home fellowship. And that home fellowship uh, took place over about 11 or 13 year period. And now here it is. And we, as a group here, the Lord has chosen to actually sell us this building when once previously we couldn't. And the reason I'm telling you that is I'm boasting in the Lord. The Lord used our kids in the public school to bring people to the home fellowship for the glory of God. Now, my older two went to a private school, so it's, see what I'm saying? But the problem becomes when, what's that? What's happening? Oh, the younger two went to the private school. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I feel like I'm at home. (laughs) But notice she's right and I'm wrong, right? (laughs) (laughs) but you understand the point you see the point i'm making i think the bible makes it is that in these debatable issues you can't point your uh, finger across the aisle and say are you even a christian what's wrong with you and divide over it no you're to have concern and care for the others in fact paul says i'm free not to eat meat but if it stumbles somebody in that camp i'll never eat meat again So he deals with that. And last week, he dealt with the role of men and women in the church. Ooh, ooh, I can feel it. And men and women in marriage. And I gave you an example of Ohio State football that built primarily and perfectly for that. I'll spare it from you, with you today, but there are roles in marriage. There are roles in the church, and nobody's not equal. We're all equal in Christ. There's just different roles. You can't survive without the place kicker. You can't survive without, in football, without the quarterback. You can't survive without the center. And none of them do the same job. They're just different. And that's the Lord saying what it is in marriage and in the church. And so today we get to another one in the middle of chapter 11. And that's conduct at the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Supper. Now, let me read you something, a few verses, and then we'll jump around a little bit. Don't you love to jump around? Okay, well, this is it. In chapter 11, verse 17, here here goes Paul continuing on after he's talked about the roles of men and women in the church. And he says this, Remember, he's answering questions. He's not answering things in a vacuum. He's not giving you a bullet point. He's not giving you systematic theology. He's giving you answers to real-life problems. And here, apparently, they were having problems at what they called the love feasts. And this is what it was. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you, that these who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Isn't that funny? That's funny to me. Anyway, okay, whatever. What? He says. Do you not have homes, houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Do do me a favor and pray with me before we begin. Well, Lord, thank you so much for this awesome word of uh, uh, giving us insight into the early church. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work here in our hearts as we read about the early church's Lord's Supper and how we are to conduct it too and the implications for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn with me, would you, to the book of Luke in chapter 24. Luke 24. I'm trying to get there. And in Luke 24, there's this very famous story after Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, how soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus is this? I mean, this is right after. This is what the early church was doing at the time that Jesus lived. Are you you tracking with me? And he just rose again. And there's this amazing story, we call it the road to Emmaus, and you find it at beginning at verse 13. Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. Two what? Two followers, two people who had given their lives to the Lord, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. What? The death and resurrection of Christ. Or, you know, the empty tomb. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they didn't know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas, or Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only stranger, (laughs) is this funny, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Jesus is always trying to draw out of you. You get that? You always want to know exactly what to do. And a lot of times, just like a good lawyer, a question comes back. Because the Lord's trying to draw out of you for your own faith so you'll understand it, so you know what he's getting at. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company 
who arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. When they didn't find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they didn't see, verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? People want the kingdom without the cross, you see. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that have been the greatest Bible study of all time? Then, verse 28, they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, hey, abide with us, for it's Toward evening and the day is far spent, and he went in to stay with them. Is this amazing or what? Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them. Here's why I'm reading you this whole thing. Here's an early reference to what these people did. He sat at the table with them. Watch this. The the guest becomes the host at a love feast. He sat at the table with them that he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Sound familiar? Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And you can read the rest of it, but look what happened at the agape feast. Turn with me to Acts 46, or excuse me, 246. There is no Acts 46, if you didn't know. Go to Acts 2.42 and 46. I'll read you both. Am I there? No, I'm not there. In 42, I just wanted to pass by this real quick. This, these are the things that the apostles did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, maybe I want to be at 42, and in prayers. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Folks, you know what the early church did and loved to do? They had agape feasts from house to house. And inside of those feasts... The Lord, on the night in which he was betrayed, was having a Passover dinner. You know this. And you've probably been to a Seder dinner. So they loved to have agape feasts. It was sort of our, dare I say it, potluck dinners. As one pastor says, though, I, don't, I hate the word luck and I'm hesitant to use the word pot. That's funny. Come on, that's funny. But they went from house to house. This was part of their culture. There was a fellowship between them that where they ate. They were called agape feasts. And apparently, according to extra-biblical sources, especially in Corinth, there was this hesitation or tendency to go with your class sort of kindred people. I mean, if you lived in Nevillewood, 
you sort of got together with all the rich people in Nevillewood, and you packed up the coolers loaded with food. And you traipsed down to the love feast, the quote, love feast, where you're supposed to be sharing and thinking of others, with your little click from Nevillewood with all the food. And you set it out on a table and you sort of, not really, but this is kind of how it turned into. You put your sign on the table, said, for Nevillewood residents only. And then, you know, you had people from maybe a lesser part of town who didn't have much. And they would sort of just show up with a little. And they started going to these love feasts. And the Nevillewood folks would even bring their alcohol. <laughs> and here... You know, the Bible calls us to look out for the interests of others and for iron to sharpen iron. And these love feasts started to spiral out of control into clicky, class-based events where the rich people were just, you know, gluttonous and, you know, pounding whatever. And some of the less wealthy people were kind of struggling to even eat. And there's all this food and enough, but you didn't cross the lines. And they've written this letter, apparently, to tell Paul and to ask Paul, what do we do? This is sort of out of control, and we need help. And Paul writes back, let's turn back there. That's, by the way, the backdrop, it must have been in the letter that was included to him because he refers to all this stuff. And he writes back to give us some principles. The first thing he says is, I don't praise you. This isn't good. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. These are not good things that are happening. I know, I mean, come on, folks. Who here loves the book of Philippians? A lot of you love the book of Philippians. And read this in verse or chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... Let, let, what he's saying here is, watch this, watch this. Have you been consoled by Christ? I mean, thinking of the sins that we've committed, that I've committed. And that he could take my sins as far as the east is from the west, based on the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He could bury them in the sea. He could say that he counts my sins against me no more. Folks, that's consoling. He's made me a new creation. He's put his spirit in me. And now he gives me the resource and strength to live out his call. Grace upon grace. That's consoling to me. He says, if any comfort of love, if any 
fellowship of the Spirit. So if there's any consolation as Christ, if, you, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any f- affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 1, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And here it comes. Here's the gut punch for the love feast. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself or herself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest or his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see how far the love feast had gotten off track? And so he writes to them, this isn't good. Verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church to the love feast, he doesn't say love feast, but that's what he's talking about. I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There are divisions again. There's the rich versus the poor. There's that this side of town versus that side of town. There's this, I'm in this party and not in that party. Uh Uh-oh, now we're coming to your kitchen. For there must also be factions. I don't know if you catch what Paul is saying here. There also must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. He's saying when you get into a setting like that and you're acting one way or the other, these factions are necessary to draw the real Christians to the surface. (laughs) The word there, factions, is actually the word heresies. How many people here hate heresies? Well, we hate heresies. Time out for a minute and just take a little rabbit trail with me. Think about this. We hate heresies. The Bible says stand up against heresies. If something's heretical, it's not biblical. If it's not orthodox Christianity and somebody's teaching it, don't stand for it. That's a heresy. But I want you to see something. God can even use heresies for his purpose. I ain't saying it. The Bible's saying it. He says, there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you get into a setting where there's people around that can do nothing for you, that's a real litmus test if you're filled with the Spirit. How do you treat people who can do nothing for you? God bless you. Here, Paul says, those situations are going to show you and God who is really spirit-filled. You catching that? And then he goes on and he says, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place... It's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You've turned this into something else. Now, folks, at the end of today, we're going to have the worshipers come back, and we're going to take communion. 
the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist. You know what Eucharist is, right? The giving of thanks. But we're going to do that. So we don't really have the problem necessarily at the Lord's Supper that they do. We're kind of in a controlled environment here. If you brought in a a cooler up here, we might say, what's going on? I mean, don't bring a cooler up here. (laughs) You know what I mean? You You don't have love feasts up here, but you do have certain things downstairs, fellowship and stuff like that. But here... When you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying you've turned it into something else. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. There's this thing you got to remember. When they got together with their love feasts, their agape feasts, to share a meal and to sharpen one another and to love one another and to exhort one another and to build one another up, they participated in the Lord's Supper too. Are you getting it? Jesus did it. You know that at the night in which he was betrayed. He sort of did the Passover dinner with him. Not sort of. He did do the Passover dinner. And now it's brought into their love feast. It's incorporated into their love feast. Everybody catching that? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. Can you imagine getting together at the church or wherever, at somebody's home, and you're all Christians and you all love each other, supposedly, and, you're, and you know, and, and, you know uh, the food is ready and the bell rings and somebody prays and, you know, all the guys are running up there or all the girls are running up there from a certain place and knocking the others out of the way. That's what he's saying. You, 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 you don't even think of others. You just go up there and feed your face. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And here it is. Why did I say it's a a faction of rich versus core? Because he says, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Not that the drunk part has to be the rich, but one is hungry. In other words, there were these unwealthy people who were coming who didn't have enough to eat and the people weren't sharing. Can you imagine? One is hungry and another is drunk. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink? (laughs) That's funny to me. He's saying, if you want to do that, just stay home. You know nothing of Christian fellowship. You know nothing of Christian thanksgiving. You know nothing of the Lord's Supper. You could just stay at home and do that. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Does it feel good to you? To have your thumb over people who are less wealthy than you or less power than you. Do you feel good about that? He's saying that's not what we are in the core of ourselves as Christians. Is everybody with me? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Well, I don't praise you in this. Keep going with me. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered. from I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I, I, I want you not to forget this. Paul, do you know the story of Paul? Well, he was a zealous Jewish person who also, by the way, was somehow a Roman citizen, we know, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He 
kept the law. Nobody was better at keeping the law than Paul. And one day, as he was going out to kill some Christians, that's what he liked to do. He liked to kill the Christians. He's on the road to Syria, Damascus, and the Lord stops him and calls out to him. And he has an encounter with the Lord, and it changes his life. He is saved, and then the trajectory of his life totally changes. And as part of his training in the Lord, you could read in the first part of Galatians, Paul writes this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles... My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see who were the apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. What's in Arabia? A desert. I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with, and he goes on and tells us who he gets acquainted with in the church. What I'm saying is here, do you, do you catch this? Here Paul is, the greatest of the great in the religious world. Money, power, fame, prestige, clout. He comes and knows the Lord, and the Lord sends him into the desert. Can you imagine what American Christians would say? Lord, I'm a Christian. You need to give me stuff now. Lord says, you're going into the desert for three years, and I'm going to show you the gospel. Isn't that interesting? In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, Psalm 63 says. That's the desert. And there, here's what I want you to catch. He received right from the Lord. By the way, we're going through Jeremiah on Wednesday nights, and one of the great failures of the overseers in the religious life of the Jews is that they didn't receive from the Lord. They didn't take the time. Oh, by the way, one of the great miss, uh, missing outs, we're missing when we're just relying on a pastor to tell us what the word says, or uh, we're relying on, you know, the guy on TV or, or whatever, a book. Those are all good things in their place, but there's this thing, there's this person called the Holy Spirit, and there's this thing called the Word of God, and the Bible calls you to sit down in communion with the Lord by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and let Him speak to you through His Word. Oh, there's a place for the pastor. There's a place for books. No one's saying that. But see, you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You, you, you don't get in just because grandma or dad or mom or sister or brother, and you just, you know, sort of glean off of all the stuff that's happening in their life. No, each one of us surrenders our life to Christ when we come face to face with him, just like Paul. And see here, Paul says, I received this from the Lord. That's important. 
this isn't just something he's going to tell us about that, you know, he read about in a magazine and watched it on TV and you should do it. He's saying, I received this from the Lord. I received this from the Lord. What did he receive? Let me read it to you. I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. See, there was four cups in the Passover meal, during the Passover meal. And the cup after supper was called the cup of redemption. It still is, by the way. He's referring to the cup of redemption. So he's saying, as we do these love feasts, and as these love feasts are happening, they're not going so well. But I want you to remember, while you're there, and as you're fellowshipping, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, verse 26. When you're there at the love feast and you start to do these things, remember it's more than just filling up your bellies. This is something that the Lord delivered to me and which is very important. And it's important for the Lord, I think, but it's very much important for us as we do it. And I'm going to break it down for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now, let me read you the end of it. This is serious business, and we're getting ready to do it. It says there in 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Well, that's pretty significant. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. I don't think that's eternal judgment. I think that's corrective judgment. Not discerning the Lord's body. I don't think he's talking about the body in the juice, or excuse me, in the cracker, I think what he's talking about right there is the church family. That makes a big difference, folks. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, we as Americans read that and go, ooh, shoot. What do I do now? Sounds penal and punitive and harsh. And I think, personally, each one of us today, hopefully I'm going to correct that view or help you to correct that view. I think this doctrine, this piece of Scripture, this, these things that Paul is delivering us should warm our heart, draw us near to the Lord, help us to live in the light in repentance and love and forgiveness. And here's why. You get it, right? 
There are two unbelievable symbols here that Paul is now instituting for people who come together as a church. Well, the symbols are the bread and the wine. This is one ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper, the communion, the Eucharist. There's another ordinance, sort of, or not sort of, there is baptism. That's for another day. But here, Paul's saying when you get together, you want to avoid this stuff. Recognize that the things that you're doing and the things that you're going to participate in are something called that Lord's Supper. It's the giving of thanks. By the way, another side note. Why is giving thanks so important? We sort of talked about it today. You know what giving thanks is. If you go back into the Old Testament, the Israelites always murmured and complained. Who by nature is a murmur or a complainer? I'll raise my hand. Oh, only two of us, me and her. Okay. Wow. You guys are amazing. And the Lord dealt severely with the Israelites when they murmured and complained about the things that the Lord provided to them. You could go look at Numbers 11. Do that for yourself. And the big reason that murmuring and complaining is really a serious thing is because you basically are saying to the Lord, you have no idea what you're doing. You don't say it that way, but that's what you're saying because the Bible tells us that he works everything out for good, for those who love the Lord. Everything. He works everything out. He even worked out in this chapter heresies. So the things that you're going through, not necessarily the thing itself is good or pure or holy, but he can use that thing to work something out. Everybody get it? And so thanklessness is really a strike against God's grace. Do you know that? You're striking against the heart of God and His grace. And several places in the Bible command us to give thanks to God. You could look these up. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Ephesians, we went through today. Um, And he wants us to be thankful. James 1.17, it strikes against the grace of God. But, you know, let's think about ourselves for a minute. It's good for us when we're thankful. You know that? In everything, give thanks, for this is the, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5. You're in the will of God when you're giving thanks. Guess what happens when you're murmuring and complaining all the time? You're outside. You're not in what God wants you to do and walk with him. You see that? Um, how about this one? Uh, we, we don't thank him for harm he doesn't cause, or I told you about that. Uh, he works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I already said that one. But all the circumstances in your life, he's working out for great stuff. And he says that we, in our prayers, are to give thanks to God as we pray. Wrap all of our prayers in thanksgiving, which helps us and keeps us from a harmful and destructive attitudes, doesn't it? When we focus on who God is and the realities of Scripture, it it helps us from being toxic. It keeps us from being toxic and living out our lives in the way in which God has called us to. So this is one of the things that we do in life, in church life, that is like the center, the core 
of all of the rest of our thankfulness. Now remember, go back. I was in a rabbit trail. I'm coming back to the two symbols, bread and wine. Bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? This is my body. Jesus took the bread. He broke it. And in order to make it, av- in order to make it available, and he said to them, this is my body. This is my body. Now, obviously, some are teaching that the bread become his body. You know places that do that, but it doesn't mean that. These are symbols of something that are real. And what's real is that Jesus Christ died for you, took the penalty that was coming for you on the cross. And for all who place their trust in the penalty, or excuse me, in the blood of Christ, are excused from that penalty because he satisfied your penalty. You get it? And so when we come, he says, this is my body broken for you. But what's fascinating about that, as Ray Stedman points out, is that the scriptures tell us, now you got to stay awake for this one. You got to be checked in for this. You got to think about this. He says, This is my body broken for you. And yet, the scriptures tell us that not a bone was to be broken of the Passover lamb, which means there weren't any bones broken for Jesus. Do you remember when the soldier came and said, Okay, I'll break his leg and take him down? That didn't happen. It fulfilled prophecy. You say, What about in his wrists? God bless you. What about in his wrists? I would say go to the Journal of American Medicine, 1987, 1988, I forget which year, and read how that can penetrate without breaking a bone. I have the article if you want it. So he tells us that here is my body broken for you. So if he, his body wasn't broken, what is Jesus saying here? Well, Ray Stedman, famous pastor in Palo Alto, says this. The scriptures tell us that not a bone of his body would be broken. Listen, watch this. Rather, it's intended, the bread, for us to live on. Stay with me here. That's the symbolism. Thus, when we gather and take the bread of the Lord's table, which we're going to do here in a little bit, break it and pass it among ourselves. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus is our life. He's the one by whom we live. As Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. You know that scripture. That's what the bread symbolized. Watch this, that he's to be our power by which we obey the demands of God. Okay, I know, I know, I'm going down rabbit trails. Watch this. Go to Romans 12. Every time I get to Romans 12, hives break out on me. You know why hives break out on me? You know why I get a little nervous at the end? Because it has this summary in my Bible, and it says, behave like a Christian. And I go, "Uh uh-oh. Because it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't wear a mask. Don't be fakey. About what is, or abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor give preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. 
Oh, who here is paid? That one gets me, man. That ain't me. Continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, and bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things. Associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. That one kills me. I think I'm always right. Repay no one for evil. Have regard for good things in the light of all men. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, leave, live peaceably with all men. Don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Here, here's the point of me reading that to you. I read that and go, how? And what I'm trying to tell you in a not very good way or articulate way is that when we come up here and what we do at the end of this service, as when we participate in the Lord's Supper, you know what we're saying? We recognize we have no power to do this. But by your body and by your blood, we can obey the demands of the Word of God, the, the doctrines of grace, to love one another, to actually even forgive people, to be tender and merciful, to be long-suffering with people, to be kind and courteous and not return evil, to do all those things. Why? Why is Jesus saying this in John six fifty seven? Why? When you were a kid or even now, when you read this, did it freak you out? Did you go, wait a minute, what does this mean? Chapter 6, verse 57, he that eats me, even he shall live by means of me. That's a different translation, but we're to eat the Lord Jesus Christ? What? That's what the bread is. It's to depend on his power. And then he takes the wine, the blood of the new covenant, the new arrangement for living that God has made by which the old life is ended. Are you catching that? That's what the blood is because Leviticus tells us there's life in the blood, which means there's death when blood drains out. You get it? So there's life in the blood, but there's death. And what you're saying in one way when we take this communion is you're saying, praise you, Lord, that I don't have to live by my old nature. That's been killed at the cross of Christ, buried under the water, and I've been raised to new life that's why you're drinking the blood. Isn't that beautiful? That's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. We're publicly going to proclaim that here in a little bit. It's so refreshing. This, do you catch almost what the Lord did in chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 11 here? It's like the Lord said, hey, Paul, take a time out here. I know there's lots of problems, but right in the middle of all the problems, I want you to plant the pause and the meditation and the realities of the Lord's Supper on the people at Corinth. In the busyness and the mistakes and the sin and the inappropriateness and the ugliness and the unforgiveness and all of that, I just want you to lay it right down there, right in the middle of all the problems, and I want that to be the core of all of your life. Well, I know I'm quoting from several people here, but I 
got to read you something that Alan Redpath says with respect to these scriptures. You see where it says, do this in remembrance of me. Listen to what Alan Redpath says. When we, when we meet around the Lord's table in the company of his people, you're going to do it here in a minute. There's no table here. Just use the chair in front of you or the person's head. <laughs> but when we take at the Lord's table with you all, all of us together, listen to what Alan Redpath says we're doing. We are doing not only what the Lord commanded us to do, <laughs> wow, but what he has asked us to do in case we forget him. Did you catch that? As a friend, he asks for the fellowship of his friends. As a love, asks for the communion of the one who loves him. It's the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It's not about whether they have all the games at the fellowship or they have all the stuff. Do they have the rock wall and do they have the youth camps and do they have the music and do they have the, all this? What's at the center of the church should be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Put that at the center of your Christian experience. It's he who loved us even unto death, calling us out of busyness, barrenness, pressures, and work. Watch. That we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. Worship him. He points us back not to his life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Watch this. The atonement of the cross the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. And I, Redpath says he wants you to remember something here. He took bread and gave thanks. He didn't murmur or complain. He didn't just endure it. But if you read this chapter in a new way, I want you to read it in a new way. I want you to see how many times it says he gave something. Folks, I got to tell you, on the night in which I was about ready to be killed... To take the wrath of God, he wouldn't be me, but you'd get it. On the night in which I wouldn't be interested in giving, I'd be interested in getting. And here it says, on the night in which he betrayed, he gave thanks. He didn't just endure it. In fact, he said, at the moment, Redpath says, at the moment when all the powers of hell are being arrayed against the Lord Jesus... And when he was going to Gethsemane and up the hill to Calvary, watch this, he gave thanks because very, from the very beginning, it was said of Jesus Christ that he delights to do the will of the Father. Now, if you'll grasp that and not just say, okay, it's 12.07 and I know you got an Israel meeting and the Steelers are on Monday night football, so I'll have to watch somebody else. And I got to get lunch and I know my... If you'll let this sink that it delighted Christ, even though there was trepidation as a man, but it delighted him to follow through on the will of the Father. It'll revolutionize who you think you are in Christ. You don't have to wrangle God to get stuff out of him. He's your good, good Father who sent his son Jesus because you matter so much. 
You see, we, this is the message for middle schoolers and elementary schoolers and us adults who still haven't figured it out. It's that he gave thanks. He kept giving and giving and giving. It delighted him to do the will of a father. And one other thing, I know I'm quoting him a lot, but it's so good that Redpath says, this tells us, remember when it says, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? That word is actually preach. So who are you preaching to? Well, you're preaching to the darkness, the minions, preaching to the good saints. They love to watch salvation. But you're also preaching to the Lord himself. In other words, when you do this, every time we do this, watch this, Redpath says, it's to be an expression of love for the living Christ. You're witnessing your trust in his atoning work when you meet around the table. You're feasting upon him as he as he uh, is received from our hearts by faith, as our heads are bowed, you're fellowshipping with the living Lord and you're telling him what he means to you. So, how are you to feast on the Lord? He says, feast upon me. Well, you don't feast like a cannibal, but spiritually, guess what you do? You feed upon his love. You feed upon his care, his thoughtfulness, faithfulness, his responses. You respond with thanksgiving and adoration. Your will feeds on his command. You begin to recognize that his word is to be obeyed. You bow before the sovereign will of God. Your soul hopes in the fulfillment of your promise and other of his promises. In other words, all that you are feeds upon the Lord. <laughs> Look, folks, when you go on. As we finish this out, and we're going to ask the worshipers wherever they are. I don't see many of them. Oh, they're the worshipers. When the worshipers come back, they're going to stand here for a minute as I finish out. Don't watch them. Just listen. You notice that the Lord says, don't take this in an unworthy manner. What does he mean? This doesn't mean go away from this. This means come to it. He's inviting sinning people to come here and to repent and to say that you're a sinner and come to the Lord. He wants you to take the communion, but you can't do it in an unworthy manner. How, how, can, you, how can you take the communion if you're not forgiving somebody? He's saying, how can you take the communion if you're a total town gossip and you won't repent? How can you take it if you're not looking out for the interests of others? Oh, listen, all, all three of those things I've made mistakes in and continue to make mistakes. But he's saying, is the trajectory of your life something that you're missing? There's a blind spot and you won't repent. He's saying right now before you take the communion, the Lord's Eucharist, the thanksgiving. He's saying, deal with it with the Lord. You get that? In fact, he says it's really important because if you don't, there's judgment coming for you. And you say, well, does that mean eternal judgment? No, I think it means corrective judgment. As you operate here in the body of Christ, in fact, many people are even weak and sick because you're not taking the Lord's 
supper, right? Do I mean, you know, and it actually says many sleep. God chastens those he loves, the Bible says. Or is all sickness and death and everything as as a consequence of some unknown sin or known to you sin in your life? No, of course not. We live in a fallen world, but sometimes we weaken ourselves needlessly because we hold on to this toxic sin that we won't repent of. Are you getting it? He says, if you do this, you judge yourselves, you wouldn't need to be corrective disciplined. You would deal with me with the Lord, you'd go out there and you'd make it right with the person you need to make it right with. So I'm not going to necessarily chastise you, the Lord says, but watch this. Folks, there's still consequences. I mean, come on, if I go over to the bar and chug down 20 beers and, you know, four tequilas, and I get in the car and say, Lord, help me, don't let me hurt anybody, and I go down and kill somebody, you think the Lord can forgive me of that? Of course. Do you think I could repent of that and... I could take the Lord's Supper, of course, but there's still the consequences. I destroyed a family. There's consequences. For if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. There's still consequences. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. <laughs> Be concerned for other people, not just yourself. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Isn't that funny? He's going to come and tell them because there's obviously more questions they have about this. So what, here's what I want you to see as we praise here for a few minutes. We feast on the Lord. You know what a lot of us do? We nibble. We just, you know, maybe, you know, this week, maybe we'll take a little bite. Maybe three weeks from now, we'll come around again and get some. And the Lord says, you know what? You can't operate that way. For the one who is surrendered and filled up with him, we need him minute by minute. So, we're going to sing, and these guys are going to come and pass things out. But let's make this more than just a ritual. If you don't come to church here regularly, but you're a saved, born-again Christian, you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper. If you don't know whether you're going to go to heaven or not, or you have a relationship with God, well, you should probably let it pass unless you talk to somebody right there in your row with you and pray that the Lord would come into your life. And then in that case, take the, take the communion. The Lord will come in. You get what I'm saying? The point is, this isn't to be cavalier. If you have kids here, that's up to you and the parents. I don't know if your kids made that decision. That's up to you. One final thing. Do you see that we're to proclaim this until the uh, Lord comes? Part of communion is recognizing that he's coming. Oh, we live in this amazing era of grace. 
And I believe and we believe that you're going to be pulled out of here in the rapture before he comes back. Praise the Lord for that. And there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. But at the end of that, he's going to come back, Revelation 19, with his saints. That's you. Jude says the same thing. And we're going to rule and reign with him on this earth. That's what the Bible says. So until that time, let this be a purifying doctrine. Have it impact the way we live. Waiting and watching for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this. And as we come and sing this song, Lord, may you be pleased with our sacrifices of praise. But Lord, if there's anybody here that needs to do business with you, so to speak, Lord, we don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. Help us right now. Point things out to us. And Lord, thank you that we can ask for forgiveness and you accept us right back in as we repent. In Jesus' name we pray.